the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Many people believe D.B. Cooper was a member of the U.S. Special Forces, and in this episode I finally speak to someone from Special Forces. Matt Lamadou was a U.S. Navy SEAL, Air Force Pararescue, a.k.a. PJ, a smoke jumper, paramedic, and captain for Tualatin Valley Fire and Rescue. On top of all those accomplishments, he's also been searching for D.B. Cooper's parachute and trying to solve the case for several years. He's a true American hero, and it was an honor to meet him. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Lamadou. Matt how did you get started with db cooper uh it was in like around 2014 and uh i was out fishing with my buddy and we were talking about that mh370 that went down and he's like man this is the this is the most interesting uh airline disaster in the history of mankind and i reminded him i'm like well they haven't figured out the D.B. Cooper case yet. And so he started asking me about it, and I really started thinking about it. And so that's kind of, we were, we were fishing on the Columbia River, and I was like, well, if it, were, if it were me, Warren, I'd jump into the Columbia River. And I have jumped in the, into the Columbia River. I parachuted when I was working uh, in the military. And so then you decided to look into the case for yourself more? Yeah. Just, just bringing it up like that? You thought, you know what, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, I just, I was like, wow, that's, I mean, it's in, in my backyard, first of all. I mean, I started going up to the Washougal River in the 1970s. And if you read Himmelsbach's book, he says, man, that's, that'd be the first place where I'd, I would look. So I actually went and bought a couple of drones and, and uh, I was on my way up to the canyon up above my house here to basically go scout out where we would start looking for him. So that's kind of where, where we started. So one of the first places you started was you wanted to look for him. You wanted to find the parachute? Yeah, I was. I, I, my, my theory was, uh, was that the money's gone. Uh, we know that it was got washed down somehow, either that or it was placed. On the, on the bank of the river there at Tina Bar. So um, my goal was like, I'm gonna, I wanna find this parachute. So that was kind of what I was looking for. And how did you go about looking for it? So uh, I, uh, I, I kind of mapped out, I, I'm real familiar with the Washougal drainage. I was like, lived 14 miles from Highway 14. So it was quite a ways up, up the Washougal River and, and up above my, my house is, there are some really steep canyons, and I know that there probably hasn't been a human being in, in some of those canyons because they're so nasty and so steep. So I, I figured I'd go up and set up on the top. So uh, 
um, that was kind of my plan. And what really started uh, interesting me more was the that was the evidence. And like I just uh, I was telling you, when you when you start to look into the case, it's nothing but chaos and confusion. You can't even figure out what type of parachutes were left on the plane, and there was conflicting things as to whether there were uh, there was one parachute left on the plane or whether there were two parachutes left on the plane, and what chute he jumped out with. So, I mean, that was kind of the start of it, and I just thought that was really odd. And then as I'm looking at it more and more, then I looked into the bills, and the bills just, I mean, there was so much evidence just in the bills. It totally changed my, my whole uh, ideology about the search and what happened. What evidence on the bills are you talking about? Uh, the bills were, had uh, nitrates on them. Okay. Right. And so it was fascinating that you read about this on the internet and they're like, oh yeah, they, they uh, had nitrates on the bills and the nitrates were from the silver nitrate when they fingerprinted the bills. And I immediately thought, this is ridiculous. I mean, you're not going to pour uh, ketchup on a bunch of bills and then look for ketchup. I mean, it's going to be there. Right. Right. So looking into the bills, I mean, that made, made absolutely no sense. I mean, you wouldn't put silver nitrate on it and then, and then test it for chemicals. You test it for chemicals and then any organic growth. And the interesting thing was there was no organic growth on the bills. And I, I mean, I grew up here and if you leave anything out for over the winter, it's going to be moldy. I mean, it's going to be inundated with mold. It's going to have spores on it. And so obviously this was an oxygen deficient environment. Yeah, that makes sense. Everything around here has moss and mold. Right. Even things that are constantly used but left outside. If you look around somebody's windows on their car around here, you'll see it. Exactly. And so, so when they were testing them, it was an abundance of nitrates and there was no organic growth. So that, uh, that tells you two things, right? That A, there's no sunlight and there's no oxygen. So then I kind of took a step back and I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, there's no way this guy jumped into the woods, right? I mean, and so then I started backtracking this and I'm like, this was planned. It was meticulously planned. The, uh, they talked about his demeanor on the aircraft and he was calm, cool, and collected. Yeah, absolutely. And the stewardess said right after he never appeared nervous, Yeah, which just almost doesn't even make sense to me. Like, how could you do something like that and not be nervous yeah. or not even show any outward sign of being nervous? So, so then you, you get to looking into that and, and you automatically know that this guy's been in very difficult situations before and he's never panicked. And so that reverts back to my, you know, the training that I've had. And it's like, so, so now I started backing out, backing out. And I'm like, okay, if this was a mission, how would I do it? And then you start to like, just get rid of all the chatter, right? Disregard what everybody said. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cause people lie. People don't remember the truth. People, you know, I mean, they, they, you can have somebody, you know, I forget 
what effect the Romlin effect or something like that was. It was a shooting where um, four people saw the shooting and all four of them gave a, a different account. So people have different versions of the truth even. Oh, absolutely. And so don't even look at what they're saying. I mean, so now you have all this conflicting information. So let's look at the data, okay? So I'm like, well, first of all, first place I would jump is in the Columbia River, right? There's no way, and we talked about this earlier, mm -hmm. uh, uh, as a smoke jumper, okay, go, go, to your, go to the website and look up the equipment that a smoke jumper wears when when he jumps out of a plane, okay? And you look at that, and for instance, when we were jumping on the east side of the Cascades, we had 180-foot letdown lines, right? And then when we jumped on the west side of the Cascades, we would, we would have to change those out and put 200-foot letdown lines. Now, none of the evidence in there shows that this guy had any type of letdown line, okay? And so now you're like, um, now you're like, well, first of all, it would be suicide to jump into the trees in the middle of the night. And we talked about this a little bit, you know, before we went on the air. And I, I don't know if you want me to explain that or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're someone who has jumped into trees. Yeah. Yeah. So I would jumped out of Redmond, uh, in Oregon. And so, um, you know, I don't think people know the facts of how difficult that is. And, and for example, when you land in a tree, you will have uh, your cape wells. One of them will be loose and one of them will be tight, usually. Uh, and so you basically take that letdown line and you use it as a rappel rope to get out of the tree. And you tie it to the most taut uh, riser that you have so you tie yourself to that riser and then you disconnect the loose riser okay mm -hmm. now i mean I, you know what 550 cord is and what what are the 32 of them in our parachutes right and so the most important thing to do is to get the get those 550 cords away from you so that they're not wrapped around your neck because your next move is to release yourself from the taut cape well the one that's that you're tied to now, and you actually drop about anywhere from a foot and a half to two feet. You have this sudden drop, okay? Now, if you had one of those 32 lines somehow wrapped around your head, and it's happened before, people, you know, jumpers have been hung by that. So to say that I'm gonna do this in the middle of the night, it would, be, it would have been suicide. And that's not the way the guy planned it. I mean, this was really planned out and well thought out. And you can tell by them, by what happened, just the facts as they transpired. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard people say, you know, landing in the trees is no big deal. You just cross your legs and fold your arms and it's no problem. But those people have never, I assume, <laughs> jumped into the trees. Yeah. There's, there's, I mean, it's it's a dangerous business. I mean, it's not just like oh the tree's gonna catch you. I mean, it it would literally. We actually when I was when I was over there, we got a we got a call from the guys in Fort Lewis, the SF unit in, in Fort Lewis, and they're like, hey, we want you 
they teach us how to jump into the trees at night. And my loft foreman comes in and tells me, and he's like, hey, you military guys got more balls than brains. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, I just got, got a call from Fort Lewis, and they want us to teach them how to jump into the woods at night. And I'm like, oh, my God. And we both had a laugh about it because that's just, it's, it's crazy. It's suicide. So, I mean, I got some, I mean, the smoke jumpers are some really hard cats and they sure aren't going to do it at night and there's no way i would do it at night and they're jumping into trees for a living oh yeah yeah we did it all the time yeah so yeah there's no possible way that that would have been a drop zone so if you're pulling this off yourself there's not a chance that you're going to land in the trees oh no no is that your first priority jumping out of the airplane to make sure that you're not landing in the woods oh yeah yeah i mean that would be at night yeah your first priority is to know where your drop zone is Right. So the drop zone of the aerial Amboy Yakult, that's not where you would jump at all. No, that's just, I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and so, so then, right, then you got start to look at the data, the, just, the, just the, the simple facts, okay? Mm-hmm. And we talk about this misdirection a little bit, right? We can't find the parachutes. Well, let's go look at the transcripts. Well, the transcripts are incomplete. And also conflicting. We were talking about this, you know, just before we started recording. But, you know, I've looked into this for probably hundreds of hours and read many different stories and many different theories. And I cannot tell you for a fact what parachutes there were, what was left on the plane, what he took, what was inside the, the pack that he had, you know, was it an NB8 or was it an NB6? Um, it was in a different pack. I can't even tell you who packed it or who gave it because there. I've read so many conflicting reports that I'm I'm just not sure at all. And I'll say something, and then somebody will tell me, "Oh, you got that wrong. It's this." Um, and but then there's an argument about that also, and you know that like Earl Cossey. He was saying, you know, he packed the shoots and he delivered them. But then you read the FBI documents and they're like, no, it, it wasn't him. I mean, he didn't have anything to do with it. So, yeah, it's just you can't get a fact straight about the parachutes at all. And that seems so basic in this to me. Like that should be cut and dry. Right. And so so now... You go back and you go, okay, let's go to the horse's mouth. Let's go read Himmelsbach's book. Ralph Himmelsbach was the lead investigator for the FBI into this case. And uh, so I, I read his book, and there was uh, like two, two distinct factors stuck in my mind about that, uh, about that book. And one of them was that uh, if there was a question about D.B. Cooper, whether like I remember them talking him in the book about there was somebody down in a bar and in like Dundee and I, I might have it wrong. But anyway, this is what sticks in my mind. And they were talking about the D.B. Cooper hijack and they, and they were overheard by somebody. And so they called the, the FBI and Himmelsbach, I guess, lived in West Lynn, Oregon. And so he calls the local sheriff and he tells them to go go round these guys up and question them. And they were like, well, what for? I mean, how can we, you know? And he's like, I don't care, make something up. So first of all, 
I'm going to violate your rights and I'm going to make something up <laughs> to pull you in and arrest you and question you, right? And Probably not uncommon. Right. I mean, there, there's our law enforcement problem right there. And then the second thing that he, that he, he does say in his book is that um, there was one time where the captain got on the intercom and he said, are you still there? And then D.B. Cooper got on the intercom and responded, yes. Okay. Now, when you're planning an operation or when you're communicating in, in, in the capacities that I've worked, right, you send a message and you receive a, a response, right? So it's confirm and verify. Okay. So he sent a message. Or you, it, 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 in this case, it doesn't matter what he said. Mm -hmm. He got on there and he's like, are you still there? And he's like, yes. Now, we know that's recorded on the black box, right? Right. I mean, of course, right? The inter intercommunication inside the airplane is going to be on there. But he might as well have got on the intercom and said, okay, it's time to jump. And he was like, okay, I'm out. I mean, that was basically what that conversation was. Now, if you go back and, and you've studied it like I have, right? And you start to march these out time, time frame by time frame and try and coincide with that with the fragmented information that's out there as far as transcripts, you don't see that anywhere in the transcripts. You have never seen that in any transcripts, have you? No, I haven't seen an official document that says that. Right. So Himmelsbach says it in his book, but you can't find it anywhere. Okay? So we know that that did happen according to Himmelsbach. So, and that just so happens to basically coincide with the time that the plane is flying over the Columbia River. Now, that is only kind of assumed with the fragmented information that we have. And so we backtrack and we're like, okay, well, let's look and see what they were saying on the black box or where the black box says the plane was when these were made. And you can't coincide those. You can't reconcile them. And so, therefore, they lost the plane, the Portland tower lost the plane, lost track of a hijacked aircraft 10 miles north of the Columbia River and picked it up 30 miles south of the Columbia River. How convenient. Right? <laughs> a, a, a piece of data in order to prove this theory, if you had this theory, even back then, you would need that piece of data and all of a sudden it's missing. Yeah, I mean, like the parachutes, the flight path, there's endless discussion about it. And it seems very difficult to nail down facts about it. And there's all these conflicting reports. I mean, and other people have flight paths that are way outside the norm. And that kind of adds confusion to the story. You know, when someone's pushing a suspect narrative that he landed in Clay Ellum, Washington, well, taking off from Seattle, headed towards Reno, that doesn't even make sense. But then they have evidence for it. it the flight path is endlessly debatable, it seems like. When, like the parachutes, it should be a simple fact in the case. Yes. And there, I mean, let's look at it. They closed the case and they just said, well, we're going to close the case. Not, here's a synopsis, right? Usually when they're going to close a case... We're going to write, write out the facts, and you would actually publicize the facts. These are the facts that we have, but they've never done that. So that basically tells you in and of itself that this was an inside job. And, and another example, go to the, uh, the D.B. Cooper vault 
that the FBI released and that is now on the internet. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they, God bless them, they they uh, posted thousands of documents. Yeah, on I think there. they're still releasing them. Yeah, and most of them are news articles, right? So there's a couple of things that you can look at. News articles aren't evidence per se, which would never be used in a trial. So which automatically tells you that most of this is a propaganda campaign, right? right. And it's directed within the FBI. And so if, there, if anybody was getting too close, then they're going to stir up a bunch of things and then release a bunch, more, a bunch of false information about it if somebody gets too close to the heart of it. So where does your investigation take you then? You know, you're looking at this, the, you believe the pilot is most likely in on it. You have that confirm and verify on there. Yeah. So where do you go from there? So, so then, uh, so then you're like, well, okay, we, we, we talked about, okay, this is how I would do that, do this mission planning Mm -hmm. as if it were an operation. Right. And then you look into, okay, who has the knowledge and capability to do it, right? And then who has the resources, okay? And then another thing, I'm like, well, this was pretty big news, right? A hijacking, basically the first of its kind in the United States, right? Somebody using a parachute. Yeah, I, I, they didn't think he was going to jump. Right. So, so, so now you start to back out, and so... That took me down to, well, I wonder what the president had to say about this, right? And who was president in 1971? So it was Nixon, right? And so if you know anything about Nixon, he, was always, he, he actually was talking about the dirty tricks, right? That was kind of one of, his, one of the lines <laughs> that's, that stuck with Nixon. So then, uh, so I started going through uh, his daily journal, and, and so... Um, I looked at that and I started, uh, have you ever, you know what a pen register is I don't in know. law enforcement? I don't know what a pen so, register so, is. So let's say you're, you're suspected of a crime or consorting with, you know, people that you shouldn't be consorting with, right? Criminals. So the first thing that the law enforcement would do is they would get your phone number and they would get a warrant for a pen register to basically identify your circle of people, right? So they would see everybody that you're calling, and this is no different than an FBI background check, right? Mm-hmm. You, when you go in for a, a background check, they have your name, they have your information, they want you to put your, you know, let, give me, give me seven, t- seven to 10 references, right? And so then they go in and they look at those references and then they branch out from there. If they find a hot spot, then, and if you're surrounded by criminals, you're a criminal. Right? Yeah, odds are. I mean, yeah, it's a math math problem, right? So uh, anyway, so I started using these daily journals as a pen register, right? And I'm like, well, I wonder who. And and now now keep in mind that the president knows, you know, they've known since the beginning of time that they're either being bugged by Hoover, which they were. I mean, the president's office was bugged by the CIA as well. Uh, so they're being bugged by Hoover, and they have a recording device in the White House. So they're not going to say anything over the phone. I mean, that's all theater, right? 
We know that, right? Yeah. I mean, if he, he knows he, at the very least he's recording right. himself. So, so now I go back to, uh, okay, well, what was he doing on November 24th in 1971? And so I look down and I, I'm like, oh, he met with Najib Halabi was one of the dudes he meets with three hours before the hijacking. Well, who is Najib Halabi? And so I look up Najib Halabi, and in the, it, it was funny. It's, it's like, uh, it started out in the things that immediately stuck in my mind that A, he is a test pilot. B, he flew out of Edwards Air Force Base, which is the testing facility for both aircraft and jumping. And, uh, and C, it says he's a parachutist. One thing I'd like to add to that, because I didn't, I hadn't heard that name at all until you brought it up, and I just Googled it, and on his Wikipedia page, there is a picture of him that looks shockingly like the D.B. Cooper sketch. And I thought, wow, that's so weird. I mean, it's spot on, like yeah. like the D.B. Cooper sketch. Yeah. But, I mean, he was he had a good alibi. He was with the president. Yeah, <laughs> that, right? is a, that is a good alibi. So, so I mean... But you look at that, okay, so this guy was, if you go back to into his history, he started out with, uh, and this even predates the OSS, okay, the Operation of Special Services, which is today the CIA. So he, he was in, uh, he was actually a trainer in World War II, okay, he was training pilots, and evidently he was a phenomenal pilot. And, uh, but, um, during World War II, he was, he never got into action because he was too good of a pilot and they needed him to teach pilots how to fly. Right. So then he gets out of the, the, he gets out of World War II and he, and he's in the OSS. Right. And it's kind of like, once you're a spy, you're always a spy. Right. So he goes through the next five years, and it's and he's working for uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. Okay. So last I heard, they have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so anyway, so he works for them for a bit, and then uh, and then uh, Kennedy appoints him appoints him to be the director of the FAA pretty charmed career path yeah so he's the director of the FAA for about four years right and so after he uh, after he's uh, in the FAA then he gets brought on by Pan American Airlines and as CEO right so he, he starts out you know upper management and in his book, he talks about uh, to where they put him. They, they evidently had a hotel wing, and I'm paraphrasing this, of course, but they, and then they had the flight wing, right? Pan Am flight, and then their, their hotel destination type of deal. And they were, they were, you know, two different entities. And it sounded like they put him in charge of that for a little while. And uh, so, and then eventually he became, you know, the president and CEO of Pan Am. And uh, he was actually in that position when the plane was hijacked. So. And then mysteriously fired. Yeah, so he was, he was fired, quote unquote. This took, uh, took place, what, in November? And then he was fired in March of... of uh, 72. 72, yeah, yeah. 
So, so then he branches out, and I mean, again, paraphrasing, but uh, he ends up going and selling airline security equipment to airports all around the globe. Now, when I was smoke jumping, right, we'd have times where people would go and actually light fires in order to make money. Right. And then when I was in structural firefighting, you know, there was a case where a guy that was supposed to be the best fire investigator in the world. Right. Because he could figure out exactly how the fire started and what happened. And he would take you down to the point of this is what happened and he'd find all the evidence. Well, he was a guy that was the one that was starting all the fires. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you can say this sounds crazy, but I mean, if it happens at that level, right and we go into wildland firefighting then we go into structural firefighting i mean how crooked are people willing to be yeah and i think it's important there were a lot of hijackings going on at the time mostly for political reasons you know trying to fly to cuba or whatever and but the db cooper hijacking that instantly kind of changed airport security and you know if you're going to go around selling airport security after that uh, the timing is incredibly convenient. Right. Well, we'll think about it, right? I mean, you have those little wands that they wave, uh, you know, metal detector wands that they wave, wave you up and down with, right, to see if you're carrying a knife or a gun, right? Mm -hmm. What are those worth? Nothing. Yeah. Unless there's a purpose for them. So I, I embedded this really cool tool. What am I going to use it for? Then you create a demand for it. Right. And I mean, that's just a simplistic version. But I mean, who was it that sold? So after 9-11, wasn't it Diebold that sold all the x-ray machines or whatever? I don't know what company, but obviously there was a lot of money that went into uh, airport security upgrades. And yeah, after no one was buying those machines before that. Right. And, and this is the most amazing thing to me was that uh, uh, in 1970, September 11th, 1970 was... Uh, the day that Nixon signed the anti-hijacking bill, basically, back in that day, which w was the precursor to upgrade modern airport security equipment. And that was in response, in part, to flight Pan Am Flight 93 being hijacked overseas. Now, if you know anything about September 11th, 2001... The same date as a hijacking bill, and there was also a Flight 93 that was associated with that. I find that fascinating. That so. is definitely an interesting coincidence. Yeah. Let's continue on your investigation. Okay, so so now uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at Hallaby a little bit, or quite a bit now. I'm I'm focusing in on on him, and uh, so I go in and I start pulling out. Uh, a CIA document, okay? And some of the some of the uh, ones released in I think they called it the Family Jewels, okay? And I found this one document, and uh, and I'm gonna get the names mixed up. Uh, there's two of them. One of them's Mayhew, and the other one's Meyer, okay? So Mayhew. And Meyer were the right hand and left hand of Howard Hughes. Okay, they were and they were with him 
right next to him, but Howard Hughes was so paranoid that he never saw them in person. Most of the, all of his dealings were either by phone or through written communication. So Hughes was paranoid, right? I think uh, that can be said. <laughs> yeah, so we all know that. So, so we got Mayhew and we got Meyer, okay? So Robert Mayhew was actually a CIA, uh, he wasn't an agent, but he was a contractor that worked for the CIA. And anything, if, when you get into looking into the CIA, contractors are expendable, okay? Oh, definitely. Right? So, I mean, the 78 stars on the wall or however many there are in the CIA, that's not a lot for a, a workforce of 20,000 people that are doing really covert stuff that's very dangerous. So we know that there's, they use cutouts all the time. We know that, right? And so we know that, so, so both Mayhew and Myers are cutouts for the CIA and they're right, they're surrounding Howard Hughes now, okay? Well, then you go back and you look at the documents that were released, okay? And the documents that were released, one of them was the CIA recruited Mayhew to attempt to get a female to befriend King, King Hussein of Jordan, okay? This was in 1959. And then, uh, so I'm researching this and, and I just thought, wow, that's really weird. And uh, so then you fast forward back to Najib Halabi and he's got a couple of daughters and one of his daughters ends up marrying the King of Jordan 20 years later, 19 years later. So I'm, my head, at this time, my head's just frickin' exploding, right? Because it wasn't just by happenstance that this happened. It's, it's insane that you can connect all of these people and that there's clear evidence to connect them. Right. So, so now... We know that the CIA is surrounding Howard Hughes, right? So nobody heard from Howard Hughes after 1970, right? He's supposedly holed up in the top of the desert end in the 60s, right? And they, they take him around from place to place. Now, anybody that knows about MKUltra knows about the, what the CIA was doing. And obviously the CIA took over Howard Hughes Incorporated and basically stole his company from him. And that can be kind of referenced through the fact that he spent like $343 million on that ship to go retrieve the Soviet submarine. It was kind of a class, it was a classified operation where they built this thing and Howard Hughes was getting into ocean floor exploration. Well, it was all hidden in that ship that he built. And I think that was like 73 or 74, and then he died in 76. So then, uh, you know, obviously he died without a will Mm -hmm. And um, his actually his company was put into, uh, I think, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. So, so Hughes Aircraft was moved into the Howard Hughes Medical in Institute, so it was shielded from anybody's view. So when you think of Howard Hughes, that's basically the synonymous with the CIA. I mean, they were funded through Howard Hughes. 
Yeah, and the end of his life is super fascinating. I mean, anyone that doesn't know the the story of the last 10 years of his life should definitely look into it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's wild. And, and, I mean, just to take that one step further, right, and we go back to Nixon. Well, who was, who was Howard Hughes surrounded by at the end of his life? And there's, uh, they talked about the Mormons, right? Right. And I don't know how many were they were. I mean, we can look into this, but and and I will eventually. But he was surrounded with four or five Mormons, and um, that basically were his gatekeepers or guards, essentially. And it was it's very ironic that John Huntsman, who who's a billionaire now, uh, and his son is actually the uh, ambassador to Russia right now, and so it's very interesting because. When you get, we got to looking into uh, who else Nixon Nixon met, and Nixon met a guy named Dudley Swim, okay, mm-hmm. uh, on October fifth of nineteen seventy one. So uh, Dudley Swim was the CEO and president of Northern Airlines. Now uh, that was a pretty small airline, and it eventually merged with Pan Am on down the line after Hallaby had left. But uh, so um, he met with uh, Nixon on October 5th or January 31st. He dies at the age of 66 of a massive heart attack suddenly. And on February 2nd, as the story goes, or February 1st, as the story goes, he was supposed to give John Huntsman $100,000 in cash. That's what the story is. Now, I think it was the other way around. I think Huntsman was, was supposed to give him $100,000 in cash, and they took care of the deal because they didn't want to pay him off. And what was the money for? No, well, the story was that he was giving Nixon $100,000 in cash so he could be the ambassador to Australia. And I just, I don't buy that. It's not, it wasn't very well publicized. Uh, it wasn't covered at all in there. And at this time was the time when the start of uh, Watergate started. And then Huntsman immediately bailed out, and he and he even I think has said in in an interview that he was so close to being caught up in the Watergate deal, but thank God Dudley Swim died the day before I was the bag man, <laughs> coincidentally. Yeah. So so you can take that two ways that a they were trying to give Nixon a hundred thousand dollars, and if he was, then the CIA obviously killed him. And so. Uh, I actually we uh, checked into uh, Dudley Swim. He's buried in Twin Falls, Idaho, and they, of course, if you want to believe in conspiracies, they cremated his body. So there's no way to test if he got injected with anything. And we, and I think before you and I talked about the experiments the CIA was using with their with their uh, shellfish toxin gun. Yeah, I looked that up. You sent me that article. And it yeah. was like using various darts or frozen pieces of poison to shoot into someone. And I, I mean, I assume there was no autopsy done on him before he was cremated. It was probably just, all right, let's get him cremated right away. Yeah, and and so so I talked to the guy in the funeral home, and he said, "Wow, there's no there's no death certificate, which is really weird." 
He's like, there's no death certificate in the file. And uh, he said, and, and he did say that they were cremated, he was cremated. And he goes, that was really rare for that day. So obviously they're trying to buy, burn the body and, and get rid of the evidence. Because if you went back, back in 19, you know, in 1970, there was uh, no way to test for it, right? So this guy has a massive heart attack and at 66 years old, right? And it just, it just adds up too easily for me. And, and, and if you, I hope you guys, whoever's listening to this, they actually look into that gun because it literally shoots a shard of ice into you and then it melts and it's gone. Yeah, I mean, you can just Google CIA heart attack gun and there's, there's a bunch of different articles on it. Yeah, it's, it's, and it, I mean, it lines up too easily. Yeah, there's even a video on it, on uh, testimony. It's not like the only source for it is, you know, tinfoilhat.com or anything like that. There's a ton of different sources and video right. on it and everything. There's a picture of a guy, like, holding up some modified 1911. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that was during the church committee hearings, actually. And the CIA, it was so funny. You, le- you read the, the, uh, the transcript, and I can't remember. I think it was at Helms. Might have been the the director of the CIA at the time. I, I think it was, but they were they were talking to him and they were questioning him about the gun, and he's like, "Yeah, we we never uh, we never used it," and it, it basically kind of gave the impression that it's sitting up on the shelf and it's just been sitting there forever, and and they never used it, and they didn't even have a testing facility for testing it, but yet. When you look at the the underlying documents, it actually has uh, the distance that it'll shoot, 328 feet, and then it has what it'll do to dogs and what it'll do to humans. (laughs) So for not testing it, they sure had a lot of data about it. Yeah, what it will do to dogs, that's that's just clear evidence that it was tested. Yes, obviously. I mean, they have the specs on on the gun, exactly. So where does your investigation take you next so uh, you know uh, but the, when I did the drift calculations uh, and uh, on the parachute and, and I mean the, they're give or take but we know that the wind direction was out, was blowing northeast at the time at about 14 knots at the airport mm-hmm. okay and uh, so uh, exactly what's 14 miles or what's so you do the drift calculations under the parachute from 10,000 feet and it puts you under canopy for about 10 minutes give or take and so uh if you're under canopy for 10 minutes and and the uppers i mean you've read you've read quite a bit we discussed this earlier i mean the uppers were around 80 miles an hour right? Mm-hmm. Something around there. So let's just take an aggregate and say it's the, the aggregate from 10,000 down to ground level is 30 miles an hour and you're under canopy for 10 minutes, right? And you'd pull your chute immediately out yeah, it, jumping? Yeah, if you pulled your chute immediately, right? Is that what you'd do? Uh, I wouldn't. I, I, I would get under canopy uh, pretty quickly though, I mean, to, to get oriented. Uh, and it would just give you more time to get your bearings about you and be able to steer, right? 
and find out where you're going. Now, I, I, I wouldn't pull at 10,000 feet. I'd probably, you know, I'd probably go out and, I mean, I'd be anxious to pull, right? Especially given the fact that it was broken clouds. You want to be under canopy just to give yourself as much time under canopy so you can, you can orient yourself to your surroundings. And you'd want to be able to find out your, your wind direction. And so uh, the road flares, I mean, everybody says that he had dynamite on him and all this other stuff, right? right. Well, the, the, the gal is describing them as red sticks. Well, red sticks are road flares. Dynamite's tan, okay? Yeah. So, and, and so uh, I would have used the road flares to signify, to basically let me know what direction the wind is blowing because I want to be facing in the wind. I don't know if, it, you know, I mean, people that have landed downwind at night and I've done that, Right. I mean, you pile drive into the ground pretty damn hard. You don't, I mean, you don't want to come up broken. So, uh, I would have used it to do that, but, uh, to find the wind direction. So, and I would have faced into the wind hoping to hit the river, obviously. And, uh, but, uh, so you do the, the drift calculations from 10,000 feet. And we just talked about 30 miles an hour for a six of an hour. So a six of 30 is, is what? Right, five miles. Right, am I doing that right? Yep. I'll have to take your word for so, it. So, so, so we're talking about a cone of about three miles. Excuse me. So we're talking about a cone of about three miles, and so exact uh, the Lackamas Lake is exactly three miles northeast of the Columbia River. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that is it's a lake that's about. Uh, has the deepest uh, that I've found is about 60 feet deep. And so we talk about the nitrates. Well, Lacamas Lake is what they call a dead lake. And it's dead because of all the nitrates in the lake from all the farming activity. And it is also a lake that is oxygen deficient. So the bottom of Lacamas Lake, the visibility is about literally a foot. And you would know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so the visibility is about a foot. And so uh, I've been dragging that thing with a hay hook, diving it, you know, laying out a grid search. And we got a, a, a side scan sonar because it puts us right in that vicinity of Lackamas Lake. And that's about, uh, what, about 600 acre lake. So it's a very big area to search. So that's kind of what I've been, you know, what I've been spending my time. But now as I'm looking in it more and more, uh, I mean, he could have, uh, something could have gone wrong. So if something went wrong and he pulled at 10,000 feet, that's where he is. And, and that's, I mean, the odds of that, I don't know. I think they're, the more I research it, they're going down a little bit. But I was 50-50. I think they're a little bit less than that that he's in there. But I think he's now I'm starting to think that he uh, he survived the jump. But you've been diving Lackamas Lake looking for evidence. Yeah, yeah. So in, uh, uh, ironically, in 2000, what was it? In 2016, I thought I had hooked into his parachute. And I was by myself. I had, uh, I had my... Uh, scanner the side sand sonar and i started pulling this up and it felt i mean i pulled plenty of parachutes out of the out of the water right and i started pulling this thing up and it, it felt like i i'd hooked into the a parachute and i'm like oh wow this is this is this is it right i got it 
And then right after that, uh, things in my life really started going crazy. And mind you, I mean, I was posted, I was posting a lot of this on the internet because I thought somebody was out to kill me. Right. So I'm like, Hey, <laughs> this is where DB's Cooper's parachute is. And I, I put X marks the spot right here, you know, on the map and everything, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm like, I think this is where he is. Right. And then right after that, uh, I started being followed again. Uh, I got chased and then, and that's when my, uh, when things went really crazy in my life, right? Do you think this is something that happens to men who are out of special forces? That uh, they end up getting wrapped up in these weird legal situations? So I have, uh, and this was even before the most recent one where the guy was court-martialed. Uh, we have a, a website where we communicate with each other that, that are all SEALs. And I uh, know of some other guys that were being chased around similar to what I have, and they were actually uh, contracting overseas. So, I mean, uh, there's other people that have been hunted like this, and I'm not the only one. So it's, it's not, I, it happens. And, and I mean, people are gonna listen to that and they're gonna go, this guy's absolutely crazy, and that's okay. That's okay if you want to think that. But, I mean, I want people to understand that uh, there is something bigger going on here than what's at face value. I mean, if I'm sitting here telling you my theory about D.B. Cooper, and if, I mean, how can everything that I've been describing be just a coincidence? Right. Yeah, and you're also someone who has done covert government operations. It's yeah. not like you're completely unfamiliar with that system and how things work. Right, and and, and that's where I think a lot of people that you just hit on it a hundred percent is like, okay, when you when you're doing an investigation, you get into reading the words instead of looking at the chain of command. Right. Because when you get to looking into the, you know, whatever it is, the, the uh, Watergate issue or whether it's the JFK assassina assassination, don't look at the words. Look at who the people are surrounding each other with and build a chain of command chart. Right. Because you can step back and say, okay, who was working for who? I don't care what they said. Who was the guy that was running this show? And build a, a build actually a chain of command chart. And then, and we could talk about the JFK deal. But anyway, that's, the, that's how you're going to solve these deals. Who was in charge? Have you looked into any of the existing D.B. Cooper suspects? Uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked into people specifically and, and that's due to the fact that I, I really thought he was, you know, that he was dead. Okay. So, I mean that, but, but you think you could have made the jump uh, now that I'm, now that I'm going back in through it and I'm digging more and more and deeper and deeper into this. And I mean, obviously it wasn't for, if, if it is in fact, what I think it is that this was a deal to where Hallaby had it planned and he made billions off of it uh, for selling airport security equipment, then the dude's alive. So I haven't looked into somebody specifically, but if that's the case, uh, you are going to be hard pressed to find them because 
there's going to like exactly like Najib Halabi. And unless you go back to square one and you find that thread of, okay, well, this guy was a smoke jumper and he was a seal, right? If you find that dude, then it's going to be, you're, you're going to be hitting on it. But you want to, you want to be able to connect him back to Halaby. So the best way to do this is to go back to square one because Halaby's in on it, right? Mm -hmm. Jeep Halaby's in on it. So, and that goes back to, we talked about uh, the other piece of evidence, and I don't, don't even think we mentioned it, and sorry, but uh, he was director of the FAA pushing the supersonic jet technology, right? And that piece of titanium that they found on his tie was pure titanium, which was only right. used in that supersonic jet. Yeah, I mean, it's super rare at the so, time. So, so that's the link. I, we should have talked about that originally when we talked about, you know, Najib Halabi talking to Nixon, because that piece of evidence right there just, I mean, yeah, it's a coincidence that he's meeting him, but having that very specific piece of evidence. And then not only, I think you need to look at um, the absence of evidence in, in certain situations, right? So now, now that we're talking that I, I think he's alive, now I'm playing this operation through my head. If he's alive, they're trying to hide him. So they threw away the eight cigarette butts because they could get the DNA off of the eight cigarette butts. And now the FBI is actually working on, uh, they have a task force, and a lot of people don't know this, but they actually have a task force that they, they are going around and collecting the DNA from all of these uh, Ancestry.com and all these other places where people submit their DNA and they're using the familial, familial DNA to connect it to the CODA system to, to solve these cold cases. And, and as you know, every week they're solving one of these 40-year-old crimes, right? Oh, yeah. You read about it all the time. You know, 25-year-old 20, murder and rape was solved due to this. They, you know, they tracked down the cousin of the guy through one of these Jed match sites and we're able to get him that way. And yeah, it's incredible. But with the Cooper, you, there doesn't seem to be any hope for that. You know, the FBI's DNA have said, you know, maybe we have a partial match. It could rule somebody out, but it couldn't identify someone. And then they we're not even sure if it's his DNA that we have a partial of. So it's right. But the cigarette butts that they're missing, right. And they're missing the black box too. Yeah. So, I mean, that tells you the absence of that evidence tells you that it's an inside job. Yeah, right? it seems to be like the only evidence in the cases that tie and then the money that was found on Tina Barr. Mm -hmm. And both of those just seem to go down other rabbit holes that lead nowhere. Right. But but the tie is what 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 links it to Halaby, which links it directly to the White House. And so you think Halaby hired someone to do that oh absolutely yeah do you i think mean it, it was active military or a retired mercenary so special forces no or? so so we talked about this a li little bit you know so uh they're using cutouts so if you plan this you're not going to use a cia operator you're going to use a cutout you're going to use i mean you know the, the the guys uh ty woods and glenn doherty that were working over in benghazi right mm -hmm. they were they were contractors for the cia they were they weren't CIA agents. They were cutouts, and they were expendable, right? When somebody's ex when you have a cutout, 
right? And so you go back to Mayhew. We talked about Howard Hughes, and we talked about Mayhew and Myers. Well, who was next to Mayhew and Myers? You look at the people, and one of them was, uh, I think it's Sam Giancana, and also uh, Roselli was the other names. And these are a couple of Chicago mob dudes, okay? Well, what happened to those guys, right? As they're doing the church committee meeting hearings in 1975, uh, uh, Giancana ends up getting assassinated and they find Roselli in a 55 gallon drum in the river. Okay, so that's the way the CIA operates. They're not going to expose themselves, right? They had both Mayhew and Myers as their cutouts, and then they had those two mob dudes that were stirring up the things. And, and at the time, there was so much confusion. Obviously, the CIA knew because they killed Kennedy, right? So the CIA knew that, and so all these people were expendable. So, and I'll give you, a, I'll give you a project or, you know, your listeners a project. When you, uh, when you, you go to the website, it's called maryferrell.com, okay, and pull up the transcript of this, of Helms in there. I think his name's Richard Helms, but anyway, he's, he, he was a CIA director. Read through the test, his testimony, and then you go to Roselli and pull up his transcripts, right? And Roselli, in 1975, you can tell this dude's ready to tell everything that he knows, right? As to where Helms, guy in the CIA, he can't remember what happened yesterday. So that right there tells you that A, who's hiding something? Is it the mob dude that's hiding something or is it the CIA dude that's hiding something? And it's pretty simple. The CIA is hiding something. So, I mean... But if they used a, a cutout, as you call it, a, a contractor, so let's say this dude was, was a SEAL or was a Marine mm -hmm. or Special Forces, he does the operation, does the, the Cooper hijacking. How do they prevent him from talking about that in the future? So, uh... Because <laughs> I can't even imagine being hired... To do something like that on U.S. soil, right? That's that to me is the craziest part. So, so I mean, and and you you start to look at this stuff, right? And I mean, I I was a soldier. You take orders, right? And your orders are for the greater good. And so, and and the way that they keep you quiet is they have something on you, right? And if they don't have something on you, they'll find something on you. And if, if they don't have anything on me, they've taken everything they can from me. I haven't seen my kids in six years, right? They've taken my family from me, right? They've totally isolated me and they've pointed me as that's the crazy guy, right? So they've attached this stigma to me to basically discredit me. Well, in the case of somebody else, I mean, look at your, I mean, everybody has something in their closet, right? Everybody, Definitely. everybody, right? Go back to J. Edgar Hoover. And I mean, he was, he was homosexual, right? He was gay. And so in that day and age, that was a mortal sin, right? Oh, yeah. And so that 
is one thing that they use to expose him, right? Or, or not expose, to control him to a certain degree. And the CIA, there's no, no doubt, read any of the literature. I mean, Hoover hated the CIA and because they knew. I mean, they have the dirt on you. They have something that, or they will make you do something. They'll put you in a situation where at the time that, oh, this is, seems a little bit on edge, right? But then when you find out that, oh, wow. Yeah, I was supposed to make this diversion over here, and all of a sudden they murdered somebody over here. Well, I wasn't involved with the murder. Well, yes, you were, <laughs> right? So they use, they use information to control you. Do you have a lot of peers or, or guys you've worked with where they, after the military, went into mercenary work or private contracting or private security for foreign dignitaries? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. super common? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What percentage of dudes leave leave the SEALs or... Oh, geez. I, and then go into know, that line of work? When I ended up getting out, I ended up, um, I ended up my service just right after or around 2000. And uh, so I wasn't around when they were offer, offering all these security contracts, right, to, mm -hmm. to work for them. But, yeah, I mean, they were having a hard time uh, maintaining uh, the military force because these guys were going out and they were making, at the time, you know, back six or $700 a day or sometimes even more, sometimes over 1000 bucks a day by doing, you know, personal security details. Which I assume is less dangerous than what you were doing. Yeah. Well, and here's an example, okay? I mean, I knew who Rob O'Neill was before anybody else knew who Rob O'Neill was, right? So, I mean, what's that information worth, okay? And everybody's like, there's a lot of, a lot of SEALs. And I, I don't know him personally. I just knew what happened before it got released, right? And so you start to look at this and talking to some of my other friends that are being chased all over the, all over the globe, including in the United States, right? I mean, these guys are being, you know, guys that were being hunted. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you remember, but this was like around the time of the elections. And I mean... They were in the, I mean, seals were in the news a lot. There was a couple of seals that somehow drowned in the middle of a pool while they were working out. There's two guys that were found in the bottom of a ship, right? There's four seals right there. There's four more that supposedly committed suicide. And this is all going, going on the time I'm looking into the D.B. Cooper case. And I'm like, man, there's about eight people that I can think of that are that are in a small community. I mean, there's only been, like in the history of the SEALs, probably about 5,000 or less SEALs out there, right? Now you have them dropping like flies. And then on the, on the pararescue side, I didn't see anybody in pararescue that were either committing suicide or something. So it was almost like the SEALs were being targeted. And so we go back to the Rob, uh, Rob O'Neill deal. Um, that's the type of information that can get you killed, right? Because that guy, what would, what would it be worth to the, the terrorist organization or the terrorist world if they went up to Montana and murdered this dude? That would be a huge coup for them, right? I mean, that would be such 
a great piece of propaganda material because they just killed the guy that shot Osama bin Laden. Right. So it's not a stretch to you to hear that, you know, someone who's just out of SEALs could be asked to do something like this as a one-time contract for the CIA. Oh, no, no. I mean, and, and it's a diversion, right? I mean, and this is what we're going to do, and this is why we're going to do it, right? I mean, that's what you get orders and you follow them. That's really interesting. I've always wondered about that, especially like you get into weird legalities being in another country and your private security, but a contractor not working for any government. I mean, I guess the money has to be really good to make it worth your while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the guys were making a lot of money. I mean, you think about it. I mean, guys that were making maybe making less than a hundred thousand dollars a year, and all of a sudden you get the opportunity to make two hundred and fifty or three hundred thousand dollars a year. That's that's a pretty big incentive. And then you don't have the rules, right? You don't have the rules that have bound you. Do you know guys that have worked for foreign governments? I better not. Say, I better <laughs> not say on some of that stuff. Yeah, I guess that question gets a little bit slippery. Yeah, but you're pretty sure DB Cooper was a frogman. Uh, it, it, I mean, I, I'd like to think so because I was a frogman, but it, it, he was—he definitely had special forces training. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. I think that the age and just how cool he was kind of says something about that. Yeah, and so. Your, your average guy in his mid to late 40s, especially in 1971, I don't think would have been pulling something like this off. No. And, they, and I mean, they, 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 there was another piece of misinformation out there, right? Because they were like, oh, this was some hippie. Not, not a hippie, but I mean, this is some, you know, thrill seeker, right? Yeah. And so that was, a, that was just propaganda in and of itself, right? I mean, a guy's sitting on the plane for five hours and he has eight cigarettes. That's not a chain smoker. That's somebody that's panicked. Yeah, definitely not by 1971 standards. Yeah, maybe by 2019 standards, that's chain smoking. But right uh, in 71, that's just your average evening. Yeah. So and then and then think about it. I mean, we talked about the titanium on the tie as well, and um, so he um, also there was a couple of the real rare, like and I forgot the names, but radioactive material like radium and cesium, I think, were on the tie as well. Yeah. And so if you think about the, the where that could be, it would either come from precision cast parts in Tigard, Oregon, or Tektronics was another one that I can think of that were using that type of that that type of uh, material. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, so you have that link as well. And that's that kind of kind of explain why it came from Portland and went up to Seattle, right? And then think about what like just the B two bomber, right? When they were building that, they were shipping people from Boeing. They were that were flying every single day down to you know Area fifty one to build this plane because they wanted to keep it all secret. Well, do you know how many? secret projects they were working back in. I mean, even even prior to the supersonic jet, they were actually working on a supersonic jet. I mean, they had the SR-71, but the one that predated that as well. So they already were working on that technology even before they announced the commercial supersonic jet, and that was when Hallaby started working on that in 62. 
oh, I'm sure by the time it gets to the point where they're working on it as a commercial project, I guarantee it's been in yeah. military use for quite a while. So, so which brings in, in today, right? I mean, Trump's talking about the Space Force and everybody's scratching their head. And they're like, what the heck is going on? Well, now all of a sudden you have Jeff Bezos that's getting in the rocket business. You have the guy uh, that owns Virgin Airlines. I forgot what his name Richard is. Richard Branson. Branson. He's He's got a rocket company now. And we got uh, Elon he, Musk. Yep. What, how do cars and rockets mix? Well... Wait a second. This is a replay of what Howard Hughes was doing, isn't it? I mean, they already have tech war technology that they're putting in space. They're doing it right now. I mean, think about it. I mean, why all of a sudden are we launching all these rockets? Is it just cool? No. There's a purpose behind it. Elon Musk just isn't throwing the first Tesla up in space just for the heck of it. There's a purpose behind it. They're putting something up there on purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's insanely expensive, so it's not something they're doing just for fun. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's how the government works. I mean, you'll find out about it, you know, 20, like, we didn't, we didn't find out until, we didn't find out about the B-2 bomber for, what, 20 years? Is that how long it was in use for before it was public knowledge? I think it was, yeah, almost 20 years. I know the the SR-71, that was around for like, they were using it for 30 years before people knew exactly what it was. Right, yeah. So that was, so, and, and so taking a step back, Darren, and looking at what, what people are, what the government's doing and what they're capable of doing. I mean, when they, when they sit there, another thing I think, you know, I mean, Helms is talking about that, that gun and he's just lying his butt off, right? He's lying through his teeth. I mean, the government's going to lie to you. And then when you go through looking at all these classified documents from the CIA and their document, the family jewels, they sit there and they, they openly say, you know, how they obfuscate their materials so they don't give away any information to the news media. I mean, they actively plan on how to how to keep these things from exposing their own illegal activity. Yeah, and I mean, if you're in charge, is your activity illegal? <laughs> That's right. And so they obviously count it towards. Well, we're doing. You know, this is for the greater good. Yeah, I guess I never thought about DB Cooper being just a contract, a job for a guy to do once. Do you think they would have had him killed then afterward? See, and that's, that's, you know, that's where I'm, I'm like, well, I mean, did they, did they shoot, shoot a shard, you know, one of these ice shards in him and poison him as they threw him out the door? I don't know. You know, I mean, it was never about the $200,000. It was about the, you know, the millions they were going to make on the contract. So, I mean, you are, they obviously tie up their loose ends very well. And so if you had that loose end out there, I mean, that totally explains, I mean, what we were talking about totally explains why he never showed up the following day to work because he was working somewhere where nobody knew about it. I mean, I, I, I would miss my, you know, I'd miss the guy if he didn't show up that Monday. I'd be like, hey, Jim didn't show up today. He's probably the dude that did it. Yeah, I think that's the FBI looked into that more than anything else. You know, who went missing the next week. So, and then, I don't know, do you want to talk about this for a second? Yeah, let's okay. do it. So, uh, 
this this takes us back to the conspiracy theory uh and you've never heard this name before and i'll even spell it for your for your people but his name's dandol d-a-n-d-o-l dianzi d-i-a-n-z okay so there's a document you go into search him google him and you'll find it on mary farrell and what this is is a, it's a t top secret document that was released in 1998 and this is going to this will go back and it'll show you how how they control things okay so my theory on the whole deal and you guys can research this but it's it's easy to confirm and verify everything that i said that i'm going that i'm going to share with you with you so you guys will know who killed jfk um so my theory is, um, obviously, Dulles got by, fired by JFK. Um, he's director of the CIA after the Bay of Pigs. And Dulles was in charge of that operation to go into the Bay of Pigs. And so they basically, I think they lost seven, American, seven Americans, uh, Marines, in that operation. And then they lost like 1,400 uh I don't know what freedom fighters, Cuban freedom fighters, and uh, so what the what the I think the operational plan was was to provide them with air support when they when they, when they went in and invaded Cuba, and that never happened. Kennedy withheld withheld the uh, withheld the air, air support and left them out to dry, and all of them died. Okay, and Kennedy knew that they were trying to drag America. Uh, into World War III, and I'm talking they, meaning the military-industrial complex and the CIA. And as an example, Operation Northwoods was a, was an operation where they were they were the CIA was actively planning on uh, staging an incident and it, making an international incident. And I think their plan, one of their plans, was to uh, take a, a plane and put a bunch of bullet holes in it and put a dead body in it and throw it, you know, off the coast of Miami somewhere. Okay, so they were actively looking for a reason to get the U.S. drawn into the Cuba situation. Okay, and Kennedy saw this coming. I mean, Kennedy was no dummy, and, and even back then, I mean, I can't believe how smart he was. But he was talking about, you know, I'm going to scatter the CIA into a thousand different pieces and scatter it into the winds. Right? Was kind of one of the comments that is attributed to him. So he wanted to, and Dulles was his key. So he left Dulles out on the, the limb, and Dulles just lost 1,400 troops, right? And he, he made Dulles look bad. And so Dulles was fired, right? And Kennedy was implementing his plan into uh, basically global peace, right? And at the same time, he was going to dismantle the, the CIA. But I was just going to ask you that. Why do you think it is that... There's all this happening in the 60s to early 70s, and then it just seems to kind of stop. Okay. Is it that they thought they could get away with it back in the day, and then information was more accessible, and so you started to see some of this come out in the 60s and 70s, and then access to information now is incredible, so it'd be in incredibly difficult to get away with some of this stuff. Uh, so they could have more control then. I mean, especially over media and the way information was distributed. There's there's only a handful of sources. Yeah. So so we can break that down into a, a few different things, right? The CIA controls the media, 
Okay. Do you they still do? Oh yeah. I mean, once the CIA starts something, they don't stop it. And I'll give you an example. Okay. We just talked about it. Uh, it, it was called HT Lingual. There's a program that the CIA announced that they had in 1952. Okay. And what that was was a uh, mail grab. They would br they would fly in all the mail from overseas, and supposedly it only involved the Russians, right? I mean, it's always the Russians, right? But HT Lingual, they basically flew all the mail in there, and then they're doing what they do now. They basically uh, been doing it for sixty over sixty years. They basically would say, okay, well. Matt Lodu, he's a criminal, so I'm going to read all of his his buddy's emails because all of those guys are, are criminals as well. Just like we talked about the FBI background checks, right? Mm -hmm. So they were they're doing the same thing in 1952. They were opening all the emails from all the from everybody that sent airmail into the United States. Okay, so then 1972. Or say through you know when when Nixon was there, he wanted to actually ramp up the program so he had all the information. He didn't want the CIA to have it, but he wanted it. So he actually, I mean, you go through Nixon's files and he's like, I want you to tape that reporter. I want you to you know audit his taxes. I want you to you know. I mean, he would use every tool that the government had to go after you, right? And part of that was data collection on you. Right. So they were doing the same thing. And then we go we fast forward to today. Right. And Snowden, not even today, but 10 years later, uh, 10 years ago, Snowden comes out and says, oh, my God, they're doing all this to us. Yeah. Well, without any permission or announcement. Right. They've been doing it since the since before the 50s, because if the program was announced in the 50s, they were doing it before. And so who was doing it before? Well, if you go back to the days of, of TWA, that was eventually owned by Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was going and cutting airstrips in South America, so in case they needed to, just in case they needed a place to have an emergency landing for the TWA flights flying to Buenos Aires or wherever they were going. Right. Well, obviously, you read through the tea leaves; those airstrips were not for mail carrying. <laughs> They were used for running drugs, obviously. So, I mean, once the CIA grabs a hold of something, they don't change it. And so that takes us into uh, Operation Mockingbird, okay? And Operation Mockingbird was a deal where they basically the CIA completely infiltrated every mainstream news media organization. They had them at the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, you know, the, uh, what was it, Miami Herald, every single news organization, you know, they had like 600 news organizations that they had infiltrated. Why? Because you, once you control the me news media, you control everything. What about like the democratization kind of of media? I mean, I'm pretty sure that I'm not being CIA controlled right now, but I mean, my, my audience is very small compared to, um, some other ones, but anyone can have a, a YouTube channel or a podcast or anything mm -hmm. like that. So, so that is, I mean, okay, but you have to have content, right? Yeah, absolutely. And current content, right? So that's the thing. These people have current content. And you and I are talking about D.B. Cooper, right? I mean, that's kind of our, our bailiwick, yeah, right? It's current if we're talking about the last 50 years. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, there, you, you, there has to be. So, so you, we talk about, um, how do I put this? Okay. For instance, 
I mentioned D.B. Cooper, right, to somebody out in the public, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's it's the, the, there's a thought that comes to that person's mind, okay? Mm -hmm. So the first thought that comes to that the person's mind, if they've ever heard about D.B. Cooper, is, man, that's the crazy guy that jumped in the middle of the woods, okay? Right? Sounds exactly right. Okay. So now, this has been going on for, 50, you know, 50 years almost, right? Okay. So now there's a pathway that this is, this is propaganda 101. There's a pathway that you've built in your brain already. Okay. D.B. Cooper, Northwest Woods. Okay. Airplane. Right. Yeah. So you, you make that link, right? And then when I come back and I'm like, hey, Darren, this was an inside job and they jumped in the Columbia River, right? It was a planned out operation. Everybody's like, that dude's crazy. They've been looking at this for 50 years and they haven't found anything. And he's absolutely nuts. I mean, this doesn't make sense. They've, the FBI has spent 50,000 man hours looking at this and some dude in Washougal thinks he knows who or where and how D.B. Cooper pulled this caper off. Nobody's going to listen to that because the news media has already built those, those neurological pathways in your mind, right, that you've already associated D.B. Cooper with a hijacking in the middle of the trees, right? So what's going to get you to change that? In order for me to get you to change that, I have to show you proof, right? And so we were just talking about, uh, we are just talking about the, the document uh, that we're, that we never got back to, Dandal Dianzi, right? And so this is a secret document that the CIA had for 35 years that they did, that they didn't release. Okay, mm -hmm. so uh, Dandal Dianzi walks in or calls the uh, the embassy in in Montevideo in Uruguay, and he's like, "Man, I have something very important that uh, I can read it right here. It says uh, of importance to the nation." So this is the same day that Lyndon Johnson is handing over guns to uh, the Winters, okay? Same day this happens, this guy's going into the embassy, and, and he has something of very high importance. But then on the bottom of the memo, the, it says that uh, although realized that change that chances remote that conversation in the above paragraph connected with the Kennedy assassination request traces on Dianzi, right? So this is a CIA document, okay? So I just told you my theory that Dulles is controlling this, right? And he, uh, actually Helms is now, because when Dulles got got fired i think they put in helms i could be wrong about that but the director this is goes all the way to the, the top of the cia right and the uh the byline on the top of it one of the actions it says it goes to the white house so this is actually sent to the white house okay so this is a document that links the cia conclusively to the jfk assassination now you're going to say well that's absolutely crazy matt because People have spent millions of hours looking into this, right? But now let's look at it into it operationally, okay? If the CIA had this document, okay, they're obligated to share it with the FBI. FBI is inside CONUS, right? Inside the, their U.S. proper, and then the CIA operates 
outside of the United States. Okay. Right. So now they have this, this, the CIA has this document and they bury it for 35 years. Dianzi is not mentioned in the 26 volumes in the Warren Commission report. I'd never heard that name until today. Yeah. So now you have a top secret document that's been hidden for 35 years. It's never been shared with the FBI and it's never been investigated. Now, if you were, I mean, just, okay. So the bottom of the paragraph says, ah, oh, this probably doesn't have anything to do with the JFK assassination. Okay. Good enough. You can say that good enough. But if that were the case, if you're the case agent for the, for the FBI, or CIA, there's going to be a report on this in the FBI file. Do you understand that? Yeah, but but there isn't, and we don't have access, or and or we don't have access to it. Oh, there's not. Yeah, there's not. It would have been mentioned in the. I mean, this is this is two days before the president is killed. This is going to be exhibit number one, and say, yeah, we interviewed this guy, and he was talking about. Uh, he thinks there's going to be a rainstorm and there's going to flood or whatever his, whatever his information of importance to the nation is, it's going to revert back to the United, you know, the United States. So, I mean, it, it has to be investigated, but yet it was never investigated and it was never shared from the CIA over to the FBI. There's no reports written about it. And they actually say in the document that they did send a field agent out there in order to check this guy out, which they did. Now, I don't have the underlying reports with this. That has not been released. So this is the only document that deals with somebody that has huge importance to the nation. Do you think that we'll ever know the story about D.B. Cooper, about what really happened? Uh, I think one of the things that I, I, that I look at, yes, we will, because I'm going to find him. I'm going to find out what happened. I look forward to that. And, and I, I have a plan to do that. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's going to take, it's going to take some interaction with law enforcement. Right. I mean, this can't be you and me, you know, stomping through the woods. It's, it's tough to find something, evidence of something 50 years after the fact, right. especially in this area yeah. where the woods change so much. Right. And so, I mean, and, and if you, you think about it, I mean, if he, if he did land in Lackamas Lake, it's there. And this is an, another interesting thing that I'll tell you about Lackamas Lake. And I, th I thought I hooked into his parachute. Well, I have gone back there to that same location. Okay, now the bottom of Lackamas Lake, there's about three feet of mud. Okay, I mean, you can stick your arm all the way down and not, you know, reach the bottom, if you will. Oh, okay? I'm sure. Ironically, the place where I hooked into this parachute. Now, this Lackamas Lake is basically a bathtub, if you will. There is no current whatsoever. Okay. So it goes over a low head, it spills into what they call round lake, and then it spills over into a low head dam, and then basically goes over two rapids and drops into the Columbia River, okay? So there is absolutely no, no current. And so, and, uh, so I go back a year later, and I'm diving the same location where I think that, uh, that I hooked into this parachute, and it's as if, I'm not kidding you, if somebody, as if somebody just freshly 
dumped 10 yards of river rocks right there and they were all exposed. So I'm sitting there looking at like this, like, well, why are these river rocks exposed right here when every place around it, you know, there's three feet of mud. It was almost as if somebody went into that exact location and, and dumped a load of rocks there. So are, in your mind, is that evidence that you were onto something right there and somebody's covering it up? I, I don't know. Well, it, uh, again, I'll backtrack. I've reported some of this. Like uh, I found a bunch of barrels down there. Okay, a bunch of around 55-gallon drums. And I mean, I became concerned because I'm like, is somebody illegally dumping them? Okay. Right. Into, I mean, and there's a paper mill right down there. So I'm like, and the paper mill's been there since, you know, the beginning of time, the early, you know, like 1930s or something like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I'm like, were these guys just coming and dumping all their sludge from the paper mill, which I don't know what it would be, but I know my neighbor used to work there and he's like, you wouldn't believe the chemicals they have there, <laughs> right? And so yeah, I'm, sure, I'm like, especially were, back in the day. were they taking these barrels up there and just dumping them in, you know, in Round Lake and Lackamas Lake? Because I was finding them dotted all over the place. And so um, I reported it. And so later as I'm going through and I'm trying to uncover everything that's happened to me, I go in there and I see I got a public information request and there's some information that, that they're saying, yeah, I know we've we've found eight barrels in this lake and we found five over here in these areas. So the only way you can find them is by having the proper equipment, like a 3D side scan sonar. So they already knew that these barrels were down there. What else did they know was down there? Right? I mean... It was hard for me to locate them, and they've already located at least, I think, eight or nine barrels. And I got this from Freedom of Information request. So I'm, now I'm like, did they, did they really do this? And if, I, and if I were them and I did this, I would have gone down and, and dumped a bunch of rocks there just to mess with me. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what I would do. Right. I mean, because now I'd be chewing on that bone. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, I mean they're obviously messing with me. Is Lackamas Lake a popular spot for divers? Oh, no, no, no. You would never, never, never dive there. I mean... Just because of the visibility? Yeah. I mean, it's... I don't know. I mean, people that that dive, right? I mean, they like to see all the way around. I mean, all of my dives have been... Like my skydives, they've been night dives, right? Because I close my eyes all the time anyway. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's... It's very, it's kind of freaky to be down there, you know, I mean, it takes a little bit of moxie. Because, I mean, there's trees down there, too, that are all jim-jammed around each other that have fallen in the lake, in in Round Lake. Not necessarily in, in Lackamas proper, but on the edge of the shore, you know, I'm still going through there. And you got to be really careful, you know, when you're when you're down there under underwater because you don't want to get, you know, hung up down there. Or have something shift on you and... Uh, never be seen seen again yeah especially diving by yourself but yeah i assume you're pretty confident doing that alone. well i have a, you know i have somebody else that i'm with as well you know that has a boat and everything so yeah are you going to continue looking there or like you said you, you've kind of changed your 50 50 he may have survived now uh, i'm i would have survived right so i now i'm i'm going back and I'm i'm going through this a little bit more and i think it's more of it's more of a math problem now to figure out, you know, 
who it is, and then and then all the people you know that they're the, that they're talking about. There's so much misinformation that's been put that that's been put out there. You you would have to go back into, you know, start the public information requests and get back and see if you, if you have a suspect. But the easiest way to do it is to go back to Dinjeev Halaby, right? Mm-hmm. Find out who this guy was stationed, and I'll give you an example. Like I mean, he was in he was in Edwards Air Force Base, right? So I've already filed a freedom of information request for Edwards, and I want to see every jump that they did in 1971. Because they would have been training for it. Because if that's the case, they were training for it. And if they were training for it, they were probably doing it at, at Edwards. But there's also, you know, there's also some CIA bases that they were running, they were running out of, uh, like, the areas in Florida as well. So, I mean, it, it's just, I don't know. You know, I mean... Again, it's going to be. I have to wrap my head around it and a little bit more and determine which way I'm going to go. But it's. Uh, I think now it's a lot of this stuff is going to have to come from the government to figure out who it who it was, and and so looking for the looking for a dead body probably you know you're not going to probably find a dead body because he probably did survive, uh, and. I don't know. The parachute's probably in the Pacific now. If, now that I think about it, you know. But but it's I'm still enamored by the fact that it had the bills had no growth on them and it had no nitrates on them. Yeah, the bills are just so puzzling. Everyone I've talked to, mm-hmm. you know, they say I have no idea how the money got there. But you know, some people have a theory. You know, maybe it was a dredge, maybe it was a plant, maybe mm-hmm. this happened, maybe this happened. But at the end, everyone's like, "I have no idea." It doesn't even really make sense how they ended right. up there and in that condition in that state. You you mentioned something that about a, a website you kind of communicate with other seals on. Um, have you ever talked to other people in, in special forces about DB Cooper? About you know, what do you think of this guy? Have you ever heard anything about him? And do you think? No, I, I, I really, I mean, I kind of keep to myself now, you know, I mean, I just, I, the, just all the things that have happened to me and it's like, it's really hard for me to, to be, I mean, I literally am, you know, paranoid when somebody comes up the driveway, I'm, I'm like, my heart gets a little bit, you know, I'm, oh, I'm sure and and some of that's probably training, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you about, yeah, I Oh, you know, they almost murdered me. Well, it's true. Right? I mean... Well, that would definitely make you paranoid. <laughs> somebody, I mean, somebody tried to murder me. And so it's like, what? what's going to happen next? And so so as, I, as I've been going through this, you know, I've been trying to stay, you know, one step ahead of what they're doing to me. You know, what they're going to be doing to me. And it was so funny because... Uh, when I told you back in July of 2016, when I went absolutely crazy, like one of the things I did was I went, you know, I mean, everything that I put in my body was organic, right? But I kept smoking, <laughs> right? Smoking weed. And it's like, oh, wow. Okay. Now that makes sense. You know, I mean, so it's, it, yeah. So I don't, I don't get out much. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, kind of a point of necessity as well. I have to limit my exposure because, you know, I mean, I don't want to be framed for, you know, I mean, I've already, they've already tried to frame me for, you know, a murder for hire for crying outside and conspiracy to commit murder. They've already tried to do that. So what else are they going to do to me? Yeah, that's a legitimate. I mean, that's the way I live my life, unfortunately. 
yeah, that would be rough. I don't know. Hopefully, I've given you given you guys enough to chew on a little bit. But I, I think you know the kind of some some main points is to get your head out of oh, okay. Well, the government's not that bad. Well, yes, they are. I mean, everything that I've told you is is uh, I mean, they have a plan, they have a structure, and they're going to follow it, right? So you need to basically go back and peel out what the what their operational plan is and what their goal is. So their goal is to you know obviously they don't want this that uh, Dandal Dianzi to come out. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so hopefully, we'll, you know, every, everybody that's listening to this will share this and then we can we can actually expose this and and make them go back and, and do the job. Right. It's almost like an algebra equation. If A equals B, B equals C, then C equals D. Right. And A equals D. I mean, that's kind of it's kind of a math problem if you can see what see where I'm going with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting the way you've looked into this. A lot of the other people I've talked to kind of are looking for a suspect who did this. And the way you've looked at it is completely different. Your who was in charge, who would have benefited from this, why would this have been done? Um, and you seem less concerned with the individual that pulled it off and more this is why this was done uh, for this reason. And these are all the people that benefited from it. Yeah. Um, one thing I would say, you know, looking into the, Edwards Air Force Base if they were practicing jumps in 71 that would be really interesting and a couple of people I've talked to say that in some of these special for special forces circles this name gets thrown around as potentially being Cooper which is uh, Ted Braden so I would I'd just give you that name to look okay. into a little bit yeah because um, he he was even in some magazine I can't remember the name off the top of my head but I'll get it to you uh, where he's basically advertising himself as a mercenary. Like, hey, look, I'm willing to do this. Here's all the experience I have. Okay. Uh, here I am. Yeah. No, I, okay, so when you when you say that, I can look into them, but um, immediately, so you have to profile these people, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't know. I, I guess I could look into it and say, you know, find out when he started to do that because... There's no way that you're going to operationally operate with somebody like that. A loudmouth. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say that article was before the hijacking also. Yeah. So if, so if that's the case, there's no way. Absolutely no way. I mean, it's like everybody, I mean, everybody that I'm talking about, like you've never heard of the name Melvin or Nita Winters. You've never seen that. Their name is not in the Warren Commission, nothing. But they, Johnson flew, met with them for an hour and 50 minutes. It even says on the journal that they went and looked at wallpaper. I mean, come on. He went there to give them two freaking guns. And they were Belgian-made guns, and I guarantee you that the guns he gave them were the uh, FANs. I mean... 762 caliber makes total sense. So, I mean, somebody that's doing this uh, wouldn't you know, be bragging about no, it. No, you are never gonna you are never gonna hear from them ever again. And I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, the only reason we're sitting here talking is because I want this to get out now because they tried to kill me, 
And I mean, if they're going to do this to somebody that has a background that I have, they're going to do it to anybody. I mean, this is just their MO. They're going to discredit you. They're going to try and imprison you. They're going to, I mean, the judge even said, oh, this is a sad case. Uh, you're, you know, I've had a case go down like this and the guy, you know, was looking at 17 years. Well, they were trying to throw me into a mental institution for 17 years. Okay, let me ask you this question then. Let's say all of a sudden I'm hot on the D.B. Cooper trail and I'm about to figure it out. Do you think I'm putting myself at risk doing that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I was thinking about this earlier, you know, before you came up here. And I, I mean, the, the good thing is, and you mentioned it now, is you're not plugged into the media. You have your voice directly into that you're putting it out there, right? So you have your episodes and your podcasts already, right? So, I mean, I think it's a, we're going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to, right? So I, I think when you keep doing what you're doing, I think, and, and then kind of you looking at it from an operational standpoint like I am, mm-hmm. right? And not just trying to gather the facts of, okay, if I was do, if I was going to pull off this caper, how would I do it and who would I use? And does this person fit that profile, right? And if, and if that's the case, then that's the hot spot that you need to look into. But as far as you keep in public about it, I mean, keep expanding your circle and drawing more attention to it. And I think you're going to be fine. Yeah, I definitely don't want my life to get sp- crazier than it already is because of db cooper so and i'll get i'll give you another example and maybe we touched on it a little bit as well but um you and i talked about this when we spoke on the phone but i mean everything that i do is being recorded i mean they have a they have an fbi and a cia file i mean for crying out loud they had the nsa at my house okay and that's another story we can get into but i mean uh that's how close that they're watching me Right. And so obviously you, you are going to automatically going to be pulled into this. Now, what they do is they'll do a case assessment and they'll, they'll have them in the FBI files and they'll be like, oh, my God, you know, Darren put out this article that, man, he's 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 look, he's so close to home. What do we do with it? Right. How do we combat it? And it's going to be hard for them to combat it. Right. Because you're publishing it on the Internet. Right. So as long as it doesn't keep, you know, as long as you make it home, you can put, <laughs> right? <laughs> put this on. Oh, put yeah, this all out I there. have to do is make it home. Yeah. So you don't think it's unrealistic that if a private citizen is uncovering something they found interesting that um, they can intercept that before it's before it's published, before they go public with it? You know, I don't have any specific examples where, I mean, other than me. Right. I mean, and, and I think that if you think about it intuitively and, and like I said, I don't know if this was had to do with me exploring, you know, uh, the uh, USO fund and, you know, the crooked prosecution that went on with that or if it was the D.B. Cooper case. Right. I mean, I didn't I didn't know which one it was, but if you start to look at it you know, me looking at it from a more holistic point or from 10,000 feet, I I should say, um, I think it has to do with the FBI, you know? And so were they trying to front run it? Because 
if I'm looking for it and, you know, all of a sudden you have somebody of my qualifications looking into it, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to discredit that person. And that's what they did. You know, first they tried to kill me. And then the next thing they, what they tried to do was discredit me. Right. Yeah. Being able to discredit someone is an incredibly powerful tool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, look at the, I mean, who knows what medications that they've used, but I mean, they use them. Right. Yeah, if you can make someone go crazy, then they're discrediting themselves. Yeah. Oh, and it's like, I mean, it was so funny. And this goes back into uh, Cord Meyer and um, all of that. I mean, I'm just reading that one of the, a guy named Frank Wisner was uh, the head of uh, like a policy uh, coordinator uh, when they overthrew our Benz in Guatemala, right? And this guy all of a sudden got went crazy in 1956 and shot himself in the head with a shotgun you know i mean come on how many times have they had it to where these people just shoot themselves in the head and you know in the case of uh gary webb twice it's tough to pull the trigger a second time yeah yeah it is all right well we better end this before they they come pick me up but um if if people want to look more into your story or if they want to ask you a question, is there somewhere people can can look and reach out for you? You mentioned your website. Yeah. Just and we'll re- have that in the show notes. And yeah. Is there a contact info on there? Yeah. I have a, well, just re- I can be reached through there or, I mean, I'm, I'm on Facebook as well, Matt Lamadou. So, you know, figure out how to spell it. It's probably on all the paperwork or, you know, Vector23.org as well. Yeah. And I'll have, I'll make sure to have your name properly spelled on the, on the episode in the show notes also. That's awesome. Well, Matt, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I, like I told you, I'd been looking to talk to someone with your experience because everyone talks about, oh, it's special forces. It was a Navy SEAL. It was this. And I, I couldn't find anyone who wanted to talk to me about that. Um, and, you know, when I read about you on, on the forums and then I thought, oh, I recognize that name. And it was that USA Today article about your motorcycle crash. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my gosh. That's the guy I'm. That's the guy I'm looking for. He's interested in in DB Cooper and is you know Navy SEAL and pararescue smoke jumper, all in one guy. I mean, this is you. You were exactly what I'm looking for, and definitely did not disappoint. Well, so cool. I appreciate that, Matt. Oh, well, uh, thank you for coming down, and I uh, hope that all of your followers share this with everybody because this really needs to get out there, and and. I mean, the, the CIA and the FBI need to be exposed for what they're doing. I mean, it's not a joke. I mean, people's, they kill people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks, Darren. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Go check out Matt's website, Vector23.org, and look for him on Facebook. There are links to both in the show notes. If you know something about this case that we don't, let us know. You can find us on Facebook, The Cooper Vortex, on Twitter, at dbcooperpodcast, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Matt Lamadou for your service to this country and this podcast. Thank you to Russell Colbert for your service to AATronics and this podcast. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Mm-hmm.